pray. Heavenly Father, we are here to worship you through the offering of your Son, Jesus Christ. And God, we just, we, we proclaim here as your people today, Lord, how deep your love must be for us, how vast beyond all measure that you would give us your only Son, your one and only Son, Jesus Christ, to make us wretches your treasure. And what a clear picture we have of that, Father, in your word today. Heavenly Father, the, the, the whole point of the scriptures is Christ. You were revealed in Christ, and Christ crucified, and Christ risen from the dead, and you've shown us yourself even before Christ was born through these scriptures. And yet, God, help us today to not miss everything else that is in here as we see Abraham's test of faith, the ways that you've been building him. Father, just help me. As I speak your word, Lord, may I speak nothing untrue, nothing that's not from your word. And Father, help your people as we just behold the story of Abraham, reaching some sense of a conclusion. And yet, Father, in that, in a a more rich way, after we walk through the story of Abraham, to behold your son, Jesus Christ. God, would you help us? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. As a graduate of um, Nippon Bible College, I've written a fair share of tests in my life. And a question that I've always asked myself over and over and over again for four years now is why would professors who claim that they love us Yeah, well, you guys are laughing. NBC grads are crying. Why would professors who claim that they love us keep giving us awful, grueling tests and put us in agony over and over and over again? Why why go through the test? What's What's the point of the test? Well, the professors want to help us understand things, so that's what the point of the class is. But then you get to the test. The point of the test is to ensure that you understand that thing. It's to make sure that you understand They're using the means, they're using the tool of the test to verify something, namely that you that you got the point. The the test is not the goal. The test isn't the end all be all. The test is a means that the professors use to make sure that, that we've attained the goal. That is namely to understand, to see something that we didn't see before. So the test isn't the goal, it just it just shows that you've understood something. And today, in this famous passage, we're gonna see Abraham tested. And Abraham's test, much like ours, though it's an amazing test, is not the end game. It's not the goal. The test of Abraham, the goal of the test of Abraham is to ensure that he knows God. It's to see that he understands the God that he's been serving this whole time as we followed his journey from Genesis 12. It's to see that he trusts the Lord, the faithful God who has been with him until now. To know that God is good and and that whatever God asks of us, we can do in faith at the drop of a hat. That's the goal of Abraham's test, to know God. This passage doesn't need much introduction uh, or context to make you familiar with it. It's it's the climax of the Abrahamic story. This is the high watermark of, of this section of Genesis. And most of us here are familiar with it. If you know anything about Abraham, you know the sacrifice of Isaac. That's the big story of Abraham. And you also know all the ways that it mirrors Christ likely, or at least some of them. 
I mean, how could you look at Abraham and Isaac and not see a clear picture of Jesus Christ? That's why we sang the songs that we sang this morning. But what I want to ask you to do for right now is to just take those thoughts of, of Jesus Christ from this passage, which are certainly there, and just sit on them for a while. Just set them aside for now. And we're just going to walk through the text the way that the text asks us to walk through it. And then in an even more fuller way after doing that, we can, we can come back and see those parallels to Christ in, in a richer way that I hope. So again, we're going to get to the parallels there, but let's walk through this story first in light of the, the story that Abraham has been, has been walking so far, his journey that he's been walking so far. Let's see why this is such a big deal for Abraham. So... Our passage is asking us, like I said, to read it in a certain way. It's trying to get us to focus on certain things, and it's doing that with a lot of blanks. So verse 22, right off from the start, tells us that this is a test, and God tested Abraham. Abraham doesn't know that. That's just the narrator. But it says God tested Abraham, which right away gives the reader a sense of relief that Isaac is not going to actually die. The reader is supposed to have a sense of relief right at the start of this passage that Isaac is not actually going to be killed by Abraham. But like I said, Abraham doesn't know that. But that's all that the text tells us about God's motives, that God tested Abraham. The rest of the text just follows Abraham's journey and it sketches out the details of his actions in a very detailed way. It sketches out his actions in a way that's more focused, more drawn out, more slow than it has in other texts. And the point of that is to get us to kind of read in between the lines, to walk with Abraham slowly on this journey to the mountain and up the mountain, and to get in his head, to read in between the lines a bit, and to slow down and imagine what must be going on with Abraham's faith, with his inner wrestling, as he brings Isaac to that mountain. So it's not that there's no tension, because we know that Isaac's not going to die. There is a lot of tension, but the tension isn't focused on whether or not Isaac will die. The tension is focused on what Abraham's faith will produce. Will Abraham pass the test? What's going on in Abraham's mind and heart as he wrestles up this mountain? The author's giving us a lot of time and space to read into what must be going on here. And so I think if we read the text that way, if we walk through it that way, we'll see what's going on here. So let's, let's begin that journey in point A, the test. 22 verse 1, After these things... God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. We don't have an exact date for this text. We don't know exactly when it happens, but when it says after these things, we can know that a good amount of time has passed since our last story in Genesis, uh, since the covenant with Abimelech. Because as we're going to see later in the text, Isaac is at least old enough now to carry a heavy load of wood up a mountain. So Isaac's probably at least a young teenager by now. So that gives us a good sense of, of when this is happening. So for the first time in years... After feeling secure in the promises of God, after beginning to settle in the land and make claims uh, of it for himself like God wanted him to, after the birth of Isaac, after Abraham feels secure and settled like he's receiving the promises, he's received them, he's walking in them, he's on top of the world, everything's going right. And for the first time in probably a decade or more, God calls Abraham's name to test him. God wants to see what Abraham's really got. He wants to test his mettle. But Abraham doesn't know that. He just knows that God has called his name, Abraham. And he promptly, in faith, he replies, Here I am. Here I am, Lord. God that's been so faithful to me, here I am. The words here I am in the scriptures, when they're used, they're very often used of, of people who serve God 
being just immediately ready to do the will of the Lord. Here I am, God. They're making themselves ready. They're putting themselves at the disposal of whatever God would have them do. And so Abraham's here I am is a statement of faith. And he's ready. And yet I don't think that Abraham could have ever prepared for what God asks in verse 2. Verse 2, and he said, God said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. You could imagine that when Abraham said, Here I am, he was eager, excited to hear again from God who's been so faithful, probably a a big smile on his face, tons of enthusiasm in his chest. Here I am, God, pick me again. And when God asks this, you can just imagine that smile leaving his face. And you can just feel his gut wrench and you can hear his breath stop. Maybe he wished he never said, here I am. Maybe he wished he hid instead. And Abraham has to be absolutely stunned and confused and perplexed at this point. The promised son who he waited for for so long, the one through whom Abraham's offspring will be named, the linchpin for everything that God promised Abraham, and he's now asked to sacrifice him. How's God even going to keep his promises now beyond the difficulty of this text of this test that God's offering Abraham there there has to be so much confusion too and yet God asks him and God doesn't even ask him in any uncertain terms he emphasizes to Abraham almost twisting the, the knife to make sure Abraham really knows what he's asking Abraham your son your only son Isaac whom you love how Abraham must have loved Isaac I just think of how much I already love my my child who's not even born yet. I don't know what they look like. I don't know what they sound like. I don't know if it's a girl. I don't know if it's a boy. I don't know if they have curly hair. I don't know if, if my child has straight hair. I don't even know if they'll serve the Lord or not. And Abraham knows Isaac. Abraham knows Isaac like the back of his hand. He, he can recognize his footsteps. He can recognize his, his breath. He can, he can hear his laugh and his cry in his head. He can call him the memory. He knows Isaac. He knows all of his little mannerisms and, and quirks and habits. He knows Isaac. And oh, how Abraham must have loved Isaac. Parents, you know. It's worth noting that when God says, your son, your only son whom you love, this is the first time that the word love is used in the whole Bible. What is the defining context? The first use of the word love? A father giving up his only son. So does Abraham have what it takes for what God put before him? Well, let's see in section B, Abraham's response. Verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut wood for the burnt offering, and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Abraham doesn't argue with God. Abraham doesn't question God. Abraham doesn't 
say anything. In jaw-dropping faith, Abraham makes just quick work of this obedience. He makes quick work of doing what God asks him to do. He gets up early to do it, and he does what God says. This, this is amazing faith. And notice, like I said before, it's sketching out his actions in a very deliberate, staggered, just step-by-step motion. One, he rises early. Two, he saddles his donkey. Three, he takes the servants and Isaac. He cuts the wood. He rose again. It tells us he rose a second time, almost redundantly, and he went to the place God told him. It's slowing down his actions so he can follow Abraham and just breathe with him as this happens. So, look at Abraham, step by step, doing all of the small steps, all of the little things that feed into big obedience. Every time he swings the axe for the wood of the offering, he knows he's cutting the deathbed of his son. He knows he's making the altar to offer his son up on, and he keeps obeying. He's doing all of the little things, all of the little steps that build the altar of sacrificial faith. It wasn't a short walk to Moriah where God asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac either. It was about 75 kilometers away, and and verse 4 tells us it took three days. Verse 4, on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes, and he saw the place from afar. As he sees the place approaching and he can see it on the horizon now in the distance, it's getting closer and closer. It's becoming more real to Abraham. It's sinking in what God has really asked him to do. And he sees where he's going to bring his son and offer his son. Does Abraham walk faster to get it over with? Does he, does he walk slower in anguish to avoid the inevitable? But with every step, Abraham almost certainly has the promise in his head. Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Lord, you said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And with what God's asking him to do and the tension of the promise, though they seem contradictory, he keeps going. God, I don't don't know how, but I believe your promise will be true even if I sacrifice my son. And we see that faith in in verse 5. Then Abraham said to his young men, the servants who he took along with him, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. That's faith right there. Abraham believes that he and Isaac will return to the servants. Abraham knows he has to offer up Isaac to kill him, to sacrifice him. But Abraham believes that Isaac will return with him to the servants. And not only that, but as hard as this task is, Abraham's considering this an act of worship. He says, the boy and I will go over there and worship and return to you. Hebrews 11.19 tells us that Abraham believed that God would raise Isaac from the dead if he needed to to keep his promises. Abraham has never seen a resurrection before. There's, there's been no resurrection in the Bible yet, and especially not one that Abraham's seen, and yet he knows his God. He knows that his God is capable of all things, and his God will fulfill his promises. So Abraham's faith here, it's not based in what's possible or what's reasonable. It's not based on his sight but the power and the goodness and the faithfulness of his God. So, so far on this journey, Abraham's passing the test. But we haven't reached the altar yet. At the base of the mountain of sacrifice, verse 6, And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife, and so they went, both of them together. Abraham is strong enough to carry the knife, strong enough to carry the materials to start a fire, 
but he's probably a little weak at this point in his in his life to carry a whole stack of wood on his back, especially enough wood that it would take to consume a burnt offering. Imagine this has to be enough wood to consume a body until it's gone. Abraham can't carry that. But Isaac, Isaac is young and full of life. And so Abraham has him bear the wood himself up the mountain. And so they went, both of them together. While still climbing the mountain, on their journey upwards, on their ascent, and Isaac said to his father, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold the fire in the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Good question, Isaac. Maybe it's just an observation from Isaac, or... Is Isaac beginning to catch on here? Is Isaac beginning to clue in to what's going on? Abraham's his father. He can probably read Abraham a bit. He knows Abraham. Can he sense his angst? Does he, does he feel the tension of what's something about to happen? Does he feel tempted to throw the wood off of his back and run? Verse 8, Abraham said, God will provide for himself a lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And so they went together. This statement is truer than Abraham knows. He doesn't know for sure what's going to happen, but he knows somehow God is going to provide a way, and he just keeps marching up the mountain, slow steps ascending into obedience. And up the mountain they went, both of them together. Verse 9 almost paints a slow-motion picture for us. Describing Abraham's action, it's, it's almost redundant how, how much it describes Abraham's actions. Let's look at it here. Verse 9, When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Again, big faith composed into little steps. Difficult, non-glamorous grueling little steps of obedience. Abraham was an old man, but Isaac was just a a young man. Isaac was strong. Isaac easily could have overpowered Abraham and just escaped. And and of of course by now he's cluing into what's going on as as he's bound. But he just lays there on top of the altar willingly and and lets his father in, in perfect obedience, lets his father bind him to the altar willingly. Did Abraham prolong the process to spend some final time with Isaac? Did Isaac help build the altar? Did Abraham bind Isaac in case he panicked and tried to escape, or did he bind Isaac to make sure one blow would be enough? We don't know. But one thing is certain by now. Abraham knows that Isaac knows. Abraham knows that Isaac knows what's going on now. He can't miss it. He's bound. He's on top of the altar. And can Abraham even look Isaac in the eyes? And then finally, verse 10. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Now stop. I want us to notice something here. At so many points in Abraham's life, at so many points in Abraham's walk of faith, he has had a plan B. Maybe God won't give me an offspring, so I'll give my inheritance to a member of my house. Maybe God won't protect us, so I'll put my wife on the line. Maybe God won't give me a son through Sarah, so I'll have a son by Hagar. 
plan B after plan B after plan B in his walk of faith. But now, now after so many journeys and growing and struggles of faith, now after the most begrudging walk of his life, now with a slaughter knife over Isaac, his son, his only son whom he loves, Abraham has no plan B. This makes no sense to Abraham. He has no idea how God will resolve it, but it doesn't matter because now Abraham is walking totally by faith and not by sight. He doesn't need a plan B. It doesn't matter what he sees before him. He's walking by faith, and this is how faith works. God is patient with us, and he leads us, and he protects us, and he lets us see all of the pain and all of the headaches that our plan Bs cause, that our backup plans cause. He let us, lets us see how that can destroy us, and he's patient with us through it while he teaches us that no backup plan will do. We need to learn to just trust him and only depend on him, no matter the cost, no matter what he asks us for, no matter what's in front of us, no matter what it looks like. Think of how God patiently prepared Abraham for this moment. When Abraham was at his father's house, God taught him to march to a land unknown, to just trust God and go. When Abraham wandered in Egypt, God taught him to depend on the protection of God. Whoever curses you, I'll curse. Whoever blesses you, I'll bless Abraham. That played out. When Abraham took Hagar to create a son, God taught Abraham to wait and depend on the Lord for his promises to come to fruition. When Abraham was commanded to send Ishmael away, God taught him in a lesser sense to give up a son whom he loves. God's been teaching Abraham till now. God didn't just throw this task on Abraham out of nowhere. God graciously, patiently crafted Abraham's faith. And then he gave him this task. And then he gave him the task that he needed the faith for. And now ready to follow the voice of his God anywhere, Abraham stands knife over Isaac. No backup plans, only trust. And right as Abraham steadies his weak hands, his old weak hands, to drive the blow, and right as the knife begins to drop, and right as Isaac is clenching his eyes shut, Abraham, Abraham! And Abraham said, <laughs> Here I am. Imagine the relief. So we move into section C, the test passed. And he said, do not lay your hands on the boy or do anything to him. For I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. God already knew that Abraham had this faith because God was the one that made this faith in Abraham. God was the one who crafted this faith in Abraham. Of course God knew that he had that faith. God made it. But now Abraham's faith is shown. Abraham's faith is made perfect by his works. James 2. And now finally Abraham breathes the breath of relief. And now it's shown beyond a shadow of a doubt that Abraham fears God. Verse 13, and Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Imagine how thankful Abraham must have been. Imagine the, the weight on his chest just dissolving. Imagine how thankful Isaac must have been for that ram as he just watches it get slaughtered. The ram 
slaughtered in Isaac's place. Imagine the thankfulness in Isaac's heart as he watches that ram and that slaughter knife that was moments ago intended for him kill the ram. Imagine the horror and the the cringing of Isaac as he saw the slaughter knife that was moments ago for him meet the throat of the ram. He can just imagine himself in the place of the ram and yet the Lord provided. And now Isaac is free and the ram is in the place of Isaac. The Lord did indeed provide. And so they named the place after that as an act of worship. And faith rewarded. Because of Abraham's faith, God's promise, that promise that we've seen time and time again, this isn't the first time we've seen this promise, it's reaffirmed, verse 15. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven. And he said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, Because you have done this, and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and as the sand that is on the seashore. So none of those are new promises, but now watch. Watch as all the way back in the book of Genesis, at the second half of verse 17 here, a new aspect of the promise comes up, and all of this is narrowed down into one man. And your offspring, the rest of verse 17, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his, singular, enemies. That's a new promise, a victory of the offspring of Abraham. And not only that, it takes all of the plural nature of the offspring of Abraham and the promises made to them, and it funnels it into a him, into one person. Your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring, in this one man to come, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. God can't swear by anything higher than himself. This this, this is for sure. This is definite. Because Abraham obeyed, because he's shown that he has the kind of faith to be the father of all those who would have faith, God has reaffirmed his promise to Abraham. Now, something we should ask ourselves, something you might already be wondering is, I thought these promises were unconditional. These are unconditional promises God made to Abraham. But here, it looks like Abraham earned them by his faith. It looks like Abraham gets them by his faith. Which one is it? Well, it's both. God's promise is unconditional. It's always been unconditional. And yet, God uses Abraham's faith to bring the promise about. Does that make it conditional? Because now God is depending on Abraham's faith because God's depending on a human? No, that doesn't make it conditional because as we've seen, God is the one who created Abraham's faith in the first place. God uses Abraham's faith as a means to bring about the promise, but that faith was all a work of God. All of this from beginning to end has all been the work of God. Verse 19. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. That's our text. It's simple. We walked through it, and yet there's so much to unpack here. So in a sense, this is the conclusion of the faith journey of our wandering Hebrew, Abraham. God took a man who was nothing and worked him in his hands until he was the father of all who would believe. Now again, there's so much to glean out of this text. So with that, let's move on to section E, everlasting truth. The first truth we're going to look at is faith. How could we not look at faith this morning? Hebrews 11 says, By faith Abraham offered up Isaac. 
So let's see what we learn from the father of faith. The first thing we see is that God builds us for great faith. It doesn't happen overnight. Just like Abraham's failures were used by God and all of the trials of his life were used by God to build into this amazing faith, God is going to do the same for us. Faith doesn't come easy. Some of us wrestle with with the trials or the failures that we've had since we began walking with the Lord. I mean, it's easy enough to process the ones that happened before Jesus because you can write those off to the fact that you didn't know Jesus. But what about all of the hard things and all of the failures and all of the trials after you started walking with Jesus? How do you process those? Well, if you need a lens to look at those through, if you need to know what God is doing with those experiences, trust that all of that comes out in the end for your good in Jesus Christ, Romans 8.28, and that God could have been using those times to prepare your faith today. Think of all the failures and all of the, the troubles that Abraham had and how even still God has used those to build in to this amazing sacrificial faith that Abraham had today. 1 Peter 1, 6-7, more speaking of exterior trials, but still shows us the nature of how God builds our faith and tests it so it's like gold. It says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, Gold is refined, it's a process, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Your faith that God has built brings praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So yes, there's a sense you you, you lament the trials, you lament the failures, you lament those things, and yet you look, God is using that fire, God is using those experiences to bring something praiseworthy at the return of his son so that when you see him, so that when you see him, you have faith that you don't need to be ashamed of. And praise God that he does that. And these tests and these trials that God will use, they so often happen right when we feel on top of the world. Right when Abraham finally had Isaac, right when Abraham, Abraham was finally settling down in the land, taking some stuff for himself, right when Abraham felt secure in the promises of God and on top of the world, God asked him for everything. God asked him for his only son, Isaac, whom he loved. So rest assured that right as you feel established, if this morning you feel established, secure in God's will, like you've made it, like this is the pinnacle of your Christian life and you've given God everything. God is going to ask you for more. You don't, you don't know what that more is yet, but rest assured that right when you feel you've made it, God is going to ask you for more. And you might think that the severity of God's test to Abraham, the severity of the sacrifice he asked Abraham, you might think that God would never require such faith of us today. That's just a one-off maybe in the Old Testament to prove a point. It's just a story. God is not asking you to sacrifice your children today, yes. But the faith and the commitment and the readiness that God asks of us in Christ is not to be any less than the faith and the commitment and the readiness of Abraham. When this God revealed himself in Jesus Christ, did he not say, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. 
In another place, Jesus is even more intense. Whoever does not hate his mother and brother and even his own life cannot follow me. The faith and the commitment and the sacrifice, the readiness of it is no less required of us in the New Testament. The bar is not dropped. Our God requires the same. And so be challenged by the faith of Abraham today. Be be challenged by the words of Christ today that if you put anybody or anything before God, if you have that one thing in your life that you would not surrender to Christ, I'd be a Christian until this point. I would do what Jesus says until this point, until he asked me to give up this thing. If you have anything like that that you know of in your life right now, you can't follow Jesus. You can't be one foot in and one foot out. It's not, an op- it's not an option. You can't reserve anything from him. You have to be ready at any point to give up anything. Even the things he's not specifically asking for right now, you need to be in a predisposition, in a mode of readiness to give those up at any point. We also see that when Abraham was called by God, he said, here I am made himself ready to do God's will just like that. And he had no idea what God would ask of him. So in fitting with what we've been saying so far, have a faith that says, here I am, Lord. I don't know what you want from me, but I'm at your disposal. You can know from God's word that he's commanding you to do some things. And there's some things he's going to ask you to do later in life. And you don't know what those things are. But whatever it is, have a disposition of here I am. And here I am and everything else that I have, that I own, that belongs to me, that I love. Faith doesn't drag its feet on these things. We've seen that faith doesn't have any plan Bs. Abraham had no backup plan. And how often do we have backup plans and think things like, well, I'll have to decrease my generosity this month in case God doesn't provide, or, or I'll destroy these things that God hates in my life, but I'll hold on to a little. I'll keep a little in case I miss them later. How often do we keep a, a plan B in the back pocket, even though God, God has clearly spoken in his word what he requires of us, what he expects from us, and not only what he requires of us, but he's given us promises to match those things that if we obey him, we'll abound in every way. And if we put away the things that God hates, we'll see the Father. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. He gives us commands and he gives us promises with those commands and yet we so often have plan B's and we've seen that faith doesn't have any plan B's today. You have to live a life that forces yourself into a corner. Strive to live a life of faith that puts yourself in a position where you have to depend on the promise of God. Where the only thing that can come through is the promises of God. And that way you learn to trust your father and your father gets all of the glory So these are just a few things that we've learned from Abraham's faith, and there's so much more that we can go into because of time. We can't go into all of that, and some of that's in your study guide, but the scripture has just set before us an amazing faith, a really, really big faith. And that's nebulous, and that's undefined, and how do you do that? How do you walk in that? What am I supposed to do today to have that sacrificial faith? Well, remember, Abraham's big act of faith, Abraham's big sacrifice was broken down into a lot of little steps, lots of little, difficult, non-glamorous steps of obedience, waking up early, cutting the wood piece by piece for the altar, loading the donkey, climbing up the mountain. Every great act of faith is broken down into small pieces of obedience. If you show me a great man of faith, I will show you a man who is faithful with the little things. Nobody jumps ahead on this stuff. 
Show me someone who has amazing sacrificial faith like Abraham, and I'll show you a man who's been faithful in the little things consistently. So, so what do you do to start today? What can you do? What are those little pieces of wood you can cut to build the altar? Well, be in the Bible every day. I mean, if you're not starting there, how are you even going to know what God requires of you? How are you even going to see the God of Abraham that you need to see to be able to trust to walk? How are you going to see him and pray Pray, call on the name of the everlasting God, of the God who provides like Abraham did. Every time God came through, he prayed. So start with things like this. Start with the little things. Find God's promises and ask him for them. And where do you find them? In the Bible. So read the Bible and pray day in, day out. And every time you do these little things, and there's more, but start there. Every time you do these little things, it's like cutting piece after wood, after piece after piece to build an altar. And you can't have the sacrifice without the altar. You don't ever get to the moment of great sacrificial faith if you're not building the altar first. So you want a great sacrificial faith? Stay steady in the small things and say, here I am, Lord, all the way. While you're putting your nose to the stone, while you're, while you're doing these things that the Lord calls you to do, just have a disposition of here I am and the Lord will find you doing his will and give you things to have a sacrificial faith over. Day in, day out, grueling, non-glamorous steps of obedience. That is big faith. At the beginning of this sermon, I told you to hang on to your ideas about Christ, and of course he's here. Of course Christ is in this passage. So bring those ideas back pull them out, and let's just flood our mind with thoughts of Christ from this passage like God wants us to do. So next section of E, E2, the only son and his father. First, yes, Christ is in Isaac, but I want us to see Christ in the ram first, the ram that was offered instead of Isaac, instead, substitution. First Peter 3.18 says that Christ was offered the righteous for the unrighteous. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that he who knew no sin was made to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's the great exchange. That's That's the putting of the ram on the altar and taking us out. The great exchange, that's sacrifice, that's Christ instead of us on the cross. So see Christ in the ram. So imagine yourself on that altar and each block of wood making up the altar is your mistakes and your sins. And so put yourself on that altar and every mistake you've done since you've come to know the Lord even. And they're on that altar and there's no escape and you're bound. And God has the knife and the fire in his hand. And that's not out of the character of God, by the way. The Psalms say that his, his sword is wetted. That means it's ready to kill. His bow is fixed at those who do wickedness. So you're on that altar and God has the knife ready in his hand. And he raises the knife and it's steady to kill because the wages of sin is death. And as it's coming down, wait! And you look up on the altar that you built yourself out of your mistakes. And you look and in the distance you see, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John one twenty nine. And Christ unbinds you. And Christ sends you aside gently. 
and Christ gets on the altar willingly. And you watch as every blow of wrath that was moments ago intended for you are laid on him. Do you remember how thankful Isaac must have been when the ram was in his place? you imagine how horrified he must have been, how he cringed as he saw every blow that was meant for him hit another living being? Your horror of Calvary and your thankfulness for the cross should be a thousand times more. Christ, Christ was the ram slain in the place of God's people instead of God's people. And how can we not see Christ in Isaac? Look at Isaac carrying the wood for the altar up the mountain. That's his own deathbed. You look at that and you see Christ carrying his own cross up Golgotha, John 19. He bore his own altar. He took his own cross. He knew it was going to be his place of death and he carried it. Look at Isaac who was silent and obedient and see Christ who did not open his mouth but was led to the slaughter like a lamb ready for the sacrifice. Look at Isaac who knew what was happening and submitted. And look at Jesus who knew exactly what was happening. And he could have called on, a, on 12 legions of angels to rescue him. And he didn't. Nobody takes his life from him. He lays it down willingly in submission to his father. He pours himself out for love. We're going to sing after the service about how Christ is the true and the better Isaac, son of sacrifice, who would climb that fearful mountain there to offer up his life, laid with faith upon the altar, Father's joy and only son. There, salvation was provided. Oh, what full and boundless love. Jesus was the Father's joy and only son. Think of how many half-sons came before Jesus. Think of how many Ishmaels came before Jesus. Sons who were not totally true sons. Not the full son of promise. Adam, son of God, failed. David, son of God, failed. And finally, here comes Jesus, the true son of God. And he's the joy of God's heart. The father rejoices over him. This is my beloved son. In him I'm pleased. He's the apple of God's eye. His only beloved. His only beloved son. And God offers him up as a sacrifice. We can't miss the sacrifice of the Father in this text either. As we sang this morning, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast with beyond all measure that he would give his only son to make a, treasure, his treasure, a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. The Father turns his face away as wounds which, wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. In this text, we see God the Father offering up his one and only son. And by this, by the Father offering up Jesus on the cross, that's how we receive the blessing of Abraham. The cross purchases the blessing of Abraham. The cross pays for and buys the blessing of Abraham. And in this way, Jesus is the offspring, the one offspring who blesses all nations. Turn in your Bibles to Romans 8.32. Turn to Romans 8.32. Romans 8.32 says, speaking of God the Father, and by the way, all scholars and commentators agree that Paul is using the language he's using here. He's speaking about Jesus and the Father, but he's using this language to allude to Genesis 22 with Abraham and Isaac. So Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, 
how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? All things. All things is more than just some land in Canaan or in Israel. It's, it's the whole heavens and the whole earth. It's the new heavens and the new earth. It's that new city, that new Jerusalem. It's all things. It's everything that Christ will make new. It's all things. And by some mystery, by some way that we can't understand, this is what the author of Hebrews, don't flip there, but the author of Hebrews in chapters 11, chapter 11, tells us that that heavenly city, that all things that, that God gives us alongside Jesus, that new Jerusalem, it's what Abraham set out for in the first place. Hebrews 11.10, for he, Abraham, was looking forward to the city that has a foundation whose designer and builder is God. Hebrews 11:13 to 16. These all, including Abraham, died in faith, not having yet received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on this earth. For people who seek for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. And if they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared them a city. The first time this drama of sacrifice plays out with Abraham and Isaac, a blessing to the nations is promised. Abraham, since you have not withheld your son, all the nations will be blessed in you. The second time that this drama plays out, with Christ on the cross being offered up, the Father's only Son, this blessing to the nations is purchased. God gives his people all things, Abraham's inheritance and everything else, all things, through the purchase of the cross. If he has not withheld his only Son from us, everything else, including the heavenly city, is ours. So that at the price of the cross, we get the promises made to Abraham. But something so much more than the promises made to Abraham, something so much more than that new Jerusalem, than that heavenly city, something so much more than anything in those heavens or on that earth that's coming to us, which is amazing, something so much more comes to us. Final section, our inheritance Jesus Christ. Think of the logic of Romans 8.32. Again, the, the language is alluding to Abraham and Isaac, but talking about the Father and Jesus Christ, the Son. So think of the logic here. Let's follow it. God knew that Abraham would give him anything. How did God know Abraham would give him anything? Because he gave him Isaac. He already gave God that which was most valuable to him, so now God knows if he'll give me that, he'll give me anything else. And here's that logic here Paul using with God and Christ, the Father in Christ. If God has given us Christ, then all other things are ours because God has already given us that which is most valuable, which is most precious, namely Christ. Everything else is easy for the Father to give to us compared to giving us Christ. The reason all things are ours, the reason we can inherit everything is because God's already given us that which is most precious, that which has most value, which is above everything else, Christ. So our greatest treasure is not what the offspring of Abraham brings us, 
Our greatest treasure is not that new heavens, that new earth, that heavenly city, the land. Our greatest treasure isn't what the offspring of Abraham brings us, but it's the offspring of Abraham himself, Jesus Christ. I pray that you see that. And so when we get to that city that Abraham set out for on this amazing journey of faith, when we get to that city that was confirmed when he offered up Isaac and that was purchased with blood when our father offered Jesus his only son, what do you get when you get there? What are you expecting? What are you hoping for? You get Christ. God's plan to bless the nations was to bring them himself in Christ. You get God. So when you walk by faith towards the city, as you walk the road of sacrifice, as God requires more and more of your faith and keeps testing you, don't think about what you're losing. Think about what you gain. Because it's so, so, so much more than anything God could ever require of you. You get Christ. Heavenly Father, God, how deep your love for us that you gave us Christ. God, you so loved the world that you didn't withhold from us your only son, but gave him up so that anyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Oh God, that we would know Christ. God, help us this week. Lord, show us by your Holy Spirit the things that you require of us. God, a lot of those are simple. You just tell us in your word what you require of us. So let us see those things, God. Let us, God, if we don't know what you're asking from us, never let it be because of unneeded ignorance. Never let it be because we didn't see what you were asking of us, asking us to sacrifice in your word. But, but Lord, beyond those things that you tell us in your word, Lord, if there's anything specific here that, that we would need to give up today, would you show us that by your Holy Spirit, Lord? And would you, would you give your people the faith they need to do that? Would you, O oh God, be the one responsible for that faith? Because we could never muster it up ourselves, Father. So God, I pray that you would build your church and that you would build the faith of your church and that they would be a people of sacrifice and that through it, they would inherit Christ. The blessing to the nations. And these things we ask you in the name of Christ. Amen.